And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. It's Friday morning in Los Angeles, and it's time for a grab bag of middling Eastern Conference teams that I have not to talk too much about. Although one team, not so middling right now. No one better to talk about these sort of, not forgotten, but no one knows what quite what to make of them. They're all around 500 except for this one first team. Nobody better from the dunker spot and all over your interwebs. Nikias Duncan, how are you, sir? I am doing well on this Friday. How are you doing, sir? I am good, and we are going to start because I am a benevolent host with your... Miami Heat, hashtag Heat Culture, hashtag nastiest, hardest playing, best conditioned, handsomest, whateverest team, <laughs> best sleeping team, does the has the best diet, eats their vegetables. The Miami Heat have won seven games in a row after a one and four start. They blitzed the Brooklyn Nets, who will also be in this podcast last night. They are 19th in offense, although their offense has been much better in this seven game winning streak. 10th in defense. Caleb Martin returned from injury last night. He's a huge part of their team. I'm hoping slash assuming he will assume the starting power forward spot when he feels healthy enough. Although your guy Haywood Highsmith has been doing just fine holding that position down. Uh, Kevin Love has been moved to backup center. Bam has been outstanding. Jimmy Butler seems to have discovered about two weeks ago, 10 days ago, that the NBA season had started and he should begin (laughs) asserting himself as the offensive superstar that he is. The Heat, man. The Heat. One and four, sputtering around. Tyler Hero gets hurt and they start winning again. I don't want to uh, be the one to say it. I don't really think there's that much connection there. But Tyler Hero just has to be like, man, can I just be on the court for some some W's? The Heat just heat around. Eight and four. What should we make of this strange team that I don't even know what to make of the last four years of, frankly, Nikias? It's it's a good basketball team. Like it felt like a hot take to say heading into the year, like this roster feels a little bit better. Granted, they did not make the big swing that they wanted to. They could have had Bradley Beal, I believe. They did not want to go down that route because of the no trade clause or what have you. The Damian Lillard stuff has been hashed, rehashed, triple hashed. I don't need to get into all of that. Obviously, Damian Lillard is not a Miami Heat, but they added some solid depth pieces. You still have the core of Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, as you said, who's been excellent. Tyler Hero still very good, and he looked better before he got hurt. Very good, yeah. Yeah, you have these role players that are now entering like year two or year three of of the build. We just saw what Caleb Martin did against Boston last year. Stinks that he just made his season debut, but as you mentioned, he's a big part of what they do on both ends of the floor. Haywood Highsmith getting a more consistent role. Can I drop a name very quickly? Because I was looking at some Haywood Highsmith stuff. They're seven and one in the games that he's played this year because he didn't start the year. Do you remember the 30 and 11 run for Miami in 16, 17? Do you remember when they picked up O'Carl White? That is is 30 and 11. Is that when they started 11 and 30 and finished 30 and 11? The bizarre, the, that bizarre season where they like thought they might have to tank and then didn't. Yes. Yes. That was the year they picked up O'Carl White, like midway through January. They won the first 12 games with them. And I think they went like 26 and nine in the games that he played in the second half of the year. So that was random. I was like, Oh, we got the Haywood Highsmith. He's just picking up that vibe once again. But he's been fine. He's been solid defensively. The three-point shooting looked like it was super real. That has tailed off. But I think it's going to settle in as him being a fine catch-and-shoot guy. And ultimately, what matters for him is that he's just taking the shots in rhythm and that he's helping keep Miami's offense flowing. But this is just a good team that knows who they are. Like, they have been subtle tweaks. They've had to adjust without Tyler Hero. The resurgence of Duncan Robinson has been very fun to watch. Just he's driving all over the place. Easily the most drives per game that he's averaged in his career. Deficiency's been fun. He still has the mind mail with Bam Adebayo. 
uh, before Thomas Bryant was kind of excised from the rotation. Like he had fun chemistry with him with that second unit. So that's been fun. And defensively, they continue to be very good. Like we don't, they're not switching as aggressively as they were. A lot of that is due to the injuries that they've had to deal with early in the year. Bam Adebayo dropping on pick and rolls at the highest rate that he ever has. And he's been really darn good at it. Watching them last night specifically with Martin back and and with the ability to play Josh Richardson, who's been decent off the bench for them, uh, and two of the Martin, Highsmith, um, Jaime Hawkins Jr. trio with Bam, that that was a pre- that's a pretty switchy group. And I do wonder as they get more of these kind of tweener forwards back with Caleb, if we'll see a little more switching. But Bam is just we we had a segment on the show the other day, and the question, the tee up for me was, does Bam get enough credit? And my answer was, Bam never gets enough credit. All we do on this show is talk about, why doesn't Bam score 28 a game? Where is Bam's offense? Bam's just like 23-10-4 and and first-team all-defense level play every game. game. Bam never has an off night effort-wise. The motor's always running. Like Some nights will score 18. Sometimes nights will score 27, whatever. The guy just brings it every single night. And all the plays that, like, they never give up on an opponent fast break. They never, like, 20 seconds into the shot clock play in defense. There's never, like, a waning of effort or focus. They just ever – it's just irritating how heat they are. Yeah, I think, honestly, this streak kind of has to start with Bam. This is the best version of him that we've ever seen. As I mentioned, he's dropping more defensively in pick and roll, and he's been elite at that. But when he does switch, you're not scoring against him on switches. Cooper Moorhead has been tweeting out stats the last few years about how – impenetrable bam is when you try to attack him in space mikhail bridges tried to do it last night in the second half and just like kind of just dribbled all like every inch of the court just he was just searching around for like what if i go here maybe i'll zigzag over here and then bam was just like you're not going you're not even getting into the paint guy just pass the ball And, and even it was one of those defensive stops this is one of my favorite moments in an nba game you know, because you go to, there's 17,000 people at the game, whatever. Like, half of them are really kind of watching the game, and half of those are really, really watching the game. But, like, two or three times a game, there'll be a defensive sequence where the whole, that lasts long enough where the whole crowd is like, oh, this is kind of fun. Oh, and then there's, like, polite, like, golf applause at the end when Mikhail Bridges. That was last night. Yeah, like, I don't, teams have just not learned the hashtag lesson, I guess, with Bam out of yet. So that's been fun. But the defense remains elite, and offensively, this is the most aggressive, but more importantly, this is the most decisive that Bam has been. Because I do think the points have definitely popped. Him getting to the free throw line at the rate that he is. Yep, is seven wild. a game, I think, right? Yeah, over seven a game, flirting with eight around this uh around the winning streak. And that was something that popped very early on in Bam Adebayo's career when he was Hassan Whiteside's backup. One of the early stats I looked at, I was like, wait a minute, his foul draw, his shooting foul rate is pretty high for a backup big. This is interesting. So it's been fun to watch him as he's tried to expand the game, really develop the mid-range jumper. He seems to be finding more of that balance between I have space, I'm going to take this mid-range jumper in rhythm, and I have space, I'm going to chew it up with a hard drive. And ultimately, I am either going to be faster than you or if you're stashing a wing on me for some reason, I'm going to be bigger than you. And so I'm going to be able to get to my spots more comfortably. And watching him toggle that kind of decision-making with if you're playing that far off and you're not paying attention to these shooters, I will just flow right into a handoff. And now we can just turn this into a two-man action. If your help isn't peeled in, now I'm diving to the basket. And once again, I'm either bigger than you or faster than you or both. And he's getting to the line as well. It's been a really fun bam out of bio season. And all, I said this on the dunker spot not too long ago. If we weren't living in the world with like Luka and his numbers and Jokic and his numbers and what Jason Tatum is doing, like there would probably be more like fringe MVP buzz for bam. 
or at the very least, there should be, because he's been that impactful on both ends of the ball. Wow. Did not expect the BAM MVP fringe in the com- in the conversation. In the conversation. To- um, interesting. Yeah, no, he's been – I look, I am a BAM true believer. The guy is unbelievable. Um, one of the best defensive players in the world, period, and offensively just kind of does what he does. And the thing to me that's important, and you saw it even last night in his first game back – about having Martin is just another active guy away from the ball, extra passes, just kind of bobbing and weaving. The Heat, when the Heat stagnate, it's because they just don't have enough of that going on around Bam and Jimmy. Like last night, there was a sequence where Duncan and Bam ran a pick and roll on the left side of the floor, left wing. And Duncan, as you said, is just all of a sudden driving, drive. It really started in last year's playoffs when his two-point rate increased from like basically nothing to almost a third of his shots and that's continued into the season so they run a pick and roll on the on the left wing and Jaime Jaquez Jr. is in the left corner near them and he kind of just like sneaks like a cat burglar along the baseline when his guy's not watching and Duncan threads a little bounce pass to him Caleb Martin's in the right corner all the way across the floor Jaime Jaquez drives draws the defense kicks it to Caleb Martin he drives from right into the middle of the paint. The ball gets all the way back to Duncan Robinson, who started the whole thing for a three, and he makes it. And just like this sort of sneaky activity of Jaquez and Martin together, just like making something out of nothing by moving around and making smart plays, I just like slam my papers down. I'm like, the heat are back! (laughs) Squeezing, making lemonade from like no spacing, not a lot going on, and like all of a sudden, wide open three for Duncan Robinson. This is what the heat do. I agree with you. I think this is a good team. Like, people thought it was bluster when they didn't get Dame, and you would get these sort of anonymous reports like, oh, the Heat are, like, pretty confident in their team. Like, they're not sitting there crying into their, you know, breakfast coffee or whatever. And, like, I think they were definitely disappointed. They wanted Damian Lillard. But they also thought that this was a good team. Like, they thought that they had a solid team. And, look, I don't know where they're going. I've given up on trying to figure out how the Heat do this every April, May, and into June. Like, I don't really understand it. I don't think they're, in terms of top-end talent, I don't even think they're, like, in the stratosphere of Boston right now. I'm not sure, you know, Milwaukee even has to prove that they're in that stratosphere. But I just know this team, they get every benefit of the doubt from me. Like, I'm just going to assume they're – we get to the end of the year, they're in the top six. They probably have a home court in the first round somehow. And they're just a gigantic pain in the ass to play against every single night. They they just don't stop. They just don't quit. And honestly, selfishly, I, I hope they break out the court during the, during the playoffs, whether they get home court or not, just to annoy people. Because that's been the funniest part of this whole ordeal. Like, it's very heat in which this is what we do. Having the Bradley quote on the court and people just hating it. It is. It serves like as a rallying cry for that group. Like, oh, y'all are hating on us again. That's fine. We Look, never I can, respect. I can tell you, this is exactly what they knew was going to happen when they had these jerseys and this court. Because I talked to people about it. I saw them early, and I was like, oh god, they really did it, didn't they? <laughs> really, guys? Like, we're gonna do this? And then it came back to me like, the heat of all teams in the league are going to be actually excited if everybody hates this because it will just serve their, like, it's us against everybody. Nobody understands us. We don't care. We're going to be the Heat. This team, you know, they're they're doing their thing. They don't turn the ball over, and they force a crap ton of turnovers, so they're winning the possession game. Their rebounding is not very good. And Jimmy Butler, after a slow start, looks like Jimmy Butler again. 
I think, again, I said this the other day, I think they'll have a couple internal conversations at the very least about Zach Levine and whether they kick the tires there. I don't think they would put Tyler Hero in that deal because I don't what do you think would you do that like if it were just like Tyler Hero and one asset for Zach Levine is that worth it to you uh I probably lean yes if, if it's just one asset I probably lean yes just because and I'm not saying the Bulls accept just that but I'm, I'm saying if I'm if the Heat are even entertaining it I think their base view is going to be there's not that much difference between the two players really mm. we know one really well because he's been with our team the whole time, and he makes $15 million a year less or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I think I would probably lean yes just within the lens of trying to maximize the Jimmy Butler window. And ultimately, what we've seen in the postseason from them when they've fallen short is that they don't have another guy that can consistently draw two. And even beyond that, they don't ha- really have another rim pressure guy. Like even during this run right now, Miami's 8-4. and four. You mentioned the offense, and the offense has been better uh, during the win streak. They're 27th in rim rate. Yeah, they don't get to the rim. That's for the season. They're just a soup, even by like, and they're not getting a lot of threes yet either. They're they're a really mid-range heavy team more than they want to be. Yeah. So like, I think even within that, I agree with you that I don't think there's a much, if we're using like the 2K scale, like Zach Levine might be an 85 and Tyler Hill's an 83. Like, I don't think there's a huge gap between the two. But in terms of what they need in the postseason, they're even with this slow starting version of Zach Levine this year. There is such a difference in ease in getting to the rim and getting to the line between Zach Levine and Tyler Hero. And if you are trying to maximize the Jimmy Butler window, and quietly Jimmy hasn't looked, he's gotten to the line, but in terms of his drives, he's not creating the same level of separation. The versus in the same. I've been trying to parse through how much of that is regular season chilling for Jimmy because that's what he does versus, and I've had a similar thought with Kawhi Leonard as well. The level of ease isn't necessarily there. He could turn it up, but like, what does it look like when he does turn it up? That kind of thing. But there's just this gap between Levine and Hero in terms of rim pressure that it, that might just be worth it for Miami. Yeah, and I talked about this the other day with Kevin Pelton. You know, it's a tricky fit to find the right ecosystem for Zach Levine. I, I said it, he needs to be the third option to minimize the amount of decisions he has to make on offense. And you need to buttress him with great defenders all over the floor. The Heat have the template for it. I just... You know, it's it will it's early. It's early. It's not even December fifteenth when these guys, the free agents, get betrayed. The heat just heating around. My Atlanta Hawks, Caca! <laughs> six and five. Just to, I don't think the Hawks have been more than like two games above five hundred in eight years. Like I just, they just are always <laughs> right around five hundred. Sixth in offense, despite a very chilly start from Ice Trey. And 22nd in defense, been in a lot of close games. Um, the starting five is kind of a, a net zero for the season, which is disappointing considering how good Jalen Johnson has been as part of that starting five and how good DeJounte Murray has been. They're killing the minutes when DeJounte Murray plays without Trey. So he's been carrying his part. I am just all over the place about this team. I was high on him before the season. High being like, you know, I've said many times I made a dumb bet with Tim Bontemps that they'd be top five in the East. High like four, five, six. Not high like, ooh, high. They're going to do something. And like there are nights when you watch him like, yeah, this is this is what I thought. Like this, this is a good coherent team. And then like there are just nights when I come away like this is just an unserious team. Like just this just it's just not a serious team. 
Like they just do the same stuff every game. Every game is close. It doesn't matter if they play like the Denver Nuggets or the Washington Generals. Like every game is going to come down to the wire, and they're going to do a lot of just like loose, loosey goosey stuff. But then it's like they're sixth in offense, despite the fact that Trey has been not very good and not making shots. He's in the 30s overall and 28% from three. Like if if they're a top five offense once he gets going. And their defense can stabilize around 18th, 19th, whatever. Like, I don't really get why it's so bad other than that Trey is Trey. Like, they have interesting personnel. You know, I. but I just feel like we're going to do all this. I'm going to do all this thinking about the Hawks. I'm going to wake up at the end of the season. They're going to be 43 and 39 or 39 and 43 or something in between. Is there? Do I have any hope here of, of this being a 47-win team? Um, I think the hope would lie in Trey Young knocking down shots again. And I don't That'd be think nice. that's a, yeah, like I don't think that's an unfair bet. Like I think it's worth noting some of the margin stuff with Atlanta's offense. Like obviously you have those ball handlers with Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. Trey is technically doing a little bit more thing, more stuff off the ball. Uh, I was looking at second spectrum earlier today, uh, taking about two more off ball screens per 100 possessions than he was last year. So that means so something. from so from zero to two is that where the number is that where the number has has gone? Uh six to eight. We'll, we'll give Trey a little bit of credit, but even with that, like it's then that's still not a lot. That's not close to like where Steph is or anything like that with all those old comps. But even with that, it feels more natural. It's more off ball movement leading into some of the on ball stuff. It feels like in years prior and even early in the Quinn Snyder stint last year, which trying to install your offense halfway through the year just isn't ideal. It felt less like, oh, cool, we have an ATO. Let's run this tray thing. And more, this is some of our natural flow. And if it doesn't work, now you're stationed one pass away. So that's at least the that's, ulti- the- that's the ultimate test of all this stuff that nerds like us want to see in these offenses is does it sustain after the first possession after a timeout? Because the first possession after a timeout, anybody can do some sexy stuff on offense. And then after that, it's like, all right, let's do our stuff. So it does feel at least a little bit natural there. So you can kind of bank on Trey eventually making shots. Like I think he's like 24, 25% on pull-up threes. Even with the depth that he takes some of those, like he's not going to shoot that all year. So the offense should perk up. My eyes do go to the defense though, because they've been more aggressive defensively. And I will commend Trey a little bit. It does feel like the effort is generally better for him. Now, agreed. where does that take him? I don't know because the size limitations are the size limitations. But, like, I eye the defense and the aggression, and I also look at what teams are doing against those 1-4 pick-and-rolls, and even the 1-5 pick-and-rolls, because I think if you're trying to get Trey in action, you're likely trying to get, like, Sadiq Bay or Jalen Johnson in action as well, and those guys are basically trapping everything, or Trey's doing, like, the show-and-recover stuff if, so, if a star is trying to mismatch on him. And how they navigate that, I feel like, has been a big part of why their defense is what it is. And even when they're targeting Clint, as he's like typically in a deeper drop this year, they've had him closer up to the level. And sometimes he's trapping depending on who they're playing. Yeah, they've now had those some back- aggra- aggressive, aggressive games where I'm like, whoa, the, the Hawks are like throwing the kitchen sink at these ball handlers and rotating behind it and really counting on scramble mode in a way that they haven't before. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that responsibility on the back end is coming to Jalen Johnson is coming to Sadiq Bay when he's in at the four or even DeJon- or even DeAndre Hunter when he, when they size down, they play him at the four sometimes. And, like, those guys have been so hit or miss with those backline rotations. Sometimes they're in on time. Sometimes they're in too early, and it's an early spray to the corner. And I'm looking at the corner rate, I mean, the rate of threes that Atlanta's allowed from the corner, like, that isn't great. I feel like as they get more reps with that, or if there's a decision in, like, December, okay, let's just dial this down. 
let's just get Clint back in a drop. Let's just go. Let's play it two on two, or we'll just make sure our help is peeled in behind that. Similar to like when Jokic is in a drop a great, in Denver. Let's just get the gr- help in. It's a great call. It's a great so call like, that they could dial it back midseason. If they dial it back, like maybe that's their pathway to getting to like 17 or 18. Because again, to your point, the fact that they're sixth and Trey has the usage that he has and hasn't shot well at all, like that's a positive sign for me. Obviously, you don't want to see Trey missing shots. But if it's this, if it's sixth with this, once Trey gets the three ball going, or even if he just gets the floater back to where it was last year. That's been the weird thing. The the fl- it's not just the shots not falling from three. There have been it's gotten better the last four or five games. The first like half dozen games, he just looked out of rhythm. Like he had kind of forgotten the timing on his floater. Like he'd 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 last second go floater to lob, but not with the clarity that he had before. He'd shoot it on the way down. Just like something with the circuitry was just off for the first four or five games on his his sort of navigation. Of all that, my other reason for tepid optimism is like, if you look at their lineup data, basically all their core groups are pretty good. Like their bench is pretty good. They bring strong players off the bench. Like there's not a there's not a grouping that is just torpedoing their team. Everybody is kind of slightly positive. That always is a good a good sign. The other interesting thing, Quinn Snyder in his first year, you mentioned his team is above average in three point rate, above average in getting to the rim. And the team that was a total old school mid range machine is now twentieth in mid range frequency. Like he has gradually remade that offense. And like you said, you'll occasionally even see a Dejounte Trey two man game. Just like I love that. I like when Steph and Clay have busted that out in the past. So I don't know. We'll see. It just feels some games. It just feels unserious. But I, I hope it gets serious. Any it's other Hawks thoughts? Any uh, any parting Hawks thoughts? Uh, parting Hawks thoughts really just. Continue to track what Onyeka Kongu does and how they ramp up the usage and or minutes for him. And you mentioned Jalen Johnson at the top. I'm just glad that dude's getting consistent playing time. He's it's been so fun good, watching man. him snatch that starting four position. It, it's just been a lot of fun. He's not giving it back. Okay, the New York Knicks, the fighting Thibodeaux, 6-5, and five, 14th in offense, and it's, it's creeping up after a cold start where Julius Randle missed every single shot. Fourth in defense. Plus four and a half per 100 possessions. That's seventh in the league. They are first in offensive rebounding and first in defensive rebounding as they are creeping back toward the model where they still can't shoot. They are shooting. This is not a this is not a typo. They're shooting 54% at the rim. At the rim. That's last in the league. That's last in the league. Second to last is 60%. So there is a six percentage point drop between the second to worst team and the Knicks. But this is their formula. We can't shoot and we're still pretty good at offense. Don't ask us how, but it works. Um, (laughs) The biggest difference so far, and I, you know, my general take on the Knicks is despite the middling record and, and the wildly up and down play of Julius Randle, I still kind of like what I see. They passed the eye test to me. Um, I don't feel that they've missed Obi Toppin's size off the bench. They're playing smaller with Hart at the four in those minutes. That's been fine to me as evidenced by the rebounding being fine. I mean, Mitchell Robinson gets every goddamn offensive rebound. The biggest difference other than that is like the starting lineup, which has been their weak spot for so long, is actually kind of humming. It's plus 46 in 118 minutes, good on both ends of the floor. And part of the reason for that is R.J. Barrett, he's been out the last few games has played really, really well and has made jump shots. 
And if that sustains and his making jump shots and all the rebounding has made up for the fact that Brunson and Randall are both shooting 40% on twos. I've always been bullish on RJ Barrett. I get that he's kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, and like not even that good at some historically. I just like the jack of all trades type. I think he's pretty good. I don't know. I know that they've been up and down. I've liked, I just overall zooming out. Once Randall normalized from like, oh my God, what's happening to, okay, he's like, looks kind of normal and burly and he's doing stuff a little bit faster. I've I, they passed the eye test for me. I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, it it helps when Julius Randle isn't being compared to names in like the fifties with slow starts in terms of shots made uh, through his first like six or seven games, whatever the stat was. But no, like I'm kind of with you. Like I I tweeted earlier this week, like I want to do a genuine deep dive on the Knicks and really see what's going on because I've been catching them, like catching like random quarters, catching random halves, finishes the games and stuff like that. I've liked a lot of the process. And like even with Julius Randle, this is something that my guy Steve has pointed out. Even though he hasn't been making shots to start the year, like it feels like the passing has been really good. And New York is still trying to figure out different ways to get him touches versus let's clear the left side of the floor and let him bully someone, which he can still do that. What's interesting is, to to your point, and I I, I forgot to note this in my notes, the last few games without Barrett, there have been a lot of Randle Robinson pick and rolls with Randall as the ball handler, which has been very, very interesting that they've redistributed some possessions that I wonder if that will continue when Barrett comes back, but that's been very noticeable. When something like that happens, it's obviously intentional on the part of the coaches to either get him going, introduce a little more spread, pick and roll flow. That's been a little, I had that just a little, you know, I'm flagging that. It's interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, if, if I remember the second spectrum, second spectrum stat correctly, I think Julius Randle's running like six pick and rolls per 100 possessions last year, and that's up to 11 so far. Ooh, you got the numbers. Yeah. I like it. So, like, he's nearly doubled the volume, and to your point, them having RJ out, that just shifts more of the on-ball usage to him. And even trying to sort through, like, Jalen Brunson's weird start. And I say weird because the three-point shooting's been good. He hasn't been able to knock down stuff inside the yard. It's felt like he's been more shot-hungry inside the yard versus probing a little bit. So that's been something that I've been trying to track. Some Nick fans have pointed it out as well. So I was like, okay, let me key in on this too and see how much of that holds. Um, also on the Brunson front, really fun defensive season for him. And so I kind of wonder how much of the slow start on some of those pull-up jumpers is just he's using more legs, navigating screens when he's in show and recover, exerting more energy, getting back to his guy. Like he's just been really solid on that end. And I think that's been a quiet part of why New York's defense has been good. Aside from Mitchell Robinson just putting together an all-defense campaign. This is – I'm glad you mentioned him. The level of mobility is just new for him. Like, even – I know Boston beat them the other night and ended up kind of running away in that game. Even, like, chasing around Porzingis on the perimeter when he had that assignment and getting back into the paint – I don't know if he's just in better shape, if he's healthier, if he lost a little weight, whatever. I mean, I don't think he lost a little weight because he's getting every rebound. He's just faster – and more in tune to the, like he is he's everywhere and you just said all defense like it's hard for center I think we're still using positions for all defense I've lost track of all the changes the NBA <laughs> we have courts and in-season tournaments and group B and C and now the all NBA's positionless I don't even know what the hell all defense is anymore it's tough when there's only two center spots um and we've already mentioned like Bam and Gobert's having a bounce back year but he's up there man he's been fantastic 
He has been. I I feel like as someone again that doesn't have a vote, I feel like it's positionless now. So that's going to be interesting to track. But I, I think he's just even if he doesn't make a team, he's certainly been at that level. Like as you mentioned, the increased mobility. Uh, they have him up to touch. They drop back. He can just wall off so much of the rim. And a quiet thing, but a very important thing, when a shot is missed, he is inhaling it. You are not getting offensive rebounds and extra chances against the Knicks when Mitchell Robinson is on the floor. And so even on these nights, and that's been a lot of them so far this year, where the Knicks can't knock down shots, they can trust, okay, we may shoot poorly. We're going to get 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 more shot attempts than you just because of what Mitchell Robinson is doing in his minutes. So he's been... <laughs> Has he been their third best player this year? Second best player? I don't even know. How, how would you go? I don't even know how to navigate Randall, who is still shooting 36% and 28% from three. I mean, if you if you wanted to tell me right now that through 11 games, Mitchell Robinson has been the most valuable player on the Knicks, I wouldn't even – I would be like, I don't know. Their start has been so weird. Fine. Like, he's – because they're <laughs> winning on rebounds. They're winning on free throws, like they don't foul, and they're starting to win on turnovers too. And he's a he's a big part. My favorite thing about the Knicks is like this uh, identity, a team identity is just you know it when you see it kind of thing. Like you know it when a team knows what it is, is comfortable in its own skin, and embraces what it is. And that's the Knicks just know we love to beat the out of you. That's our identity. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're not pretty. Uh, it's not going to be the most pleasing variety of basketball, but at the end of this game, you're going to be tired and bruised, and you're going to have to box us out every goddamn time, and Julius Randle is going to bulldoze into you every single possession. Josh Hart's going to be flying down the rim, and if you get in his way on a fast break, he's going knees up at the <laughs> rim, and he's going to knock your ass over and lay the ball in. Dante Givincenzo is going to fly all over the floor. They just they like the fact that, that you feel them. They like the fact that some teams, and I think they felt this against Cleveland in the playoffs last year by the middle of that series, like, they don't want any part of this. Like, like we're not the most skilled team. None of this erases, like, they still need a better number one guy than Jalen Brunson. They still have all the draft picks. They still all this stuff. Like, all of that is still true. They just know exactly who they are, and they like to inflict pain on you. And if you don't want any part of it, you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was going to say. That's what enamors me so much about this Knicks group because they have this physicality that just bothers people. And their role players both embody that physicality and randomness, but also they're so good at filling gaps. And it makes me, it makes the start hurt a little bit more just because Jalen hasn't been himself. Julius hasn't been himself. But they have a roster full of guys that if we have a bona fide number one that draws two, we know exactly what we need to do. Like Josh Hart, really good cutter. Really good offensive rebounder. He is a very willing screener if you want to invert things. So, like, if the Knicks had a true star wing, they can do that. That's what's been fun about the R.J. Barrett start, the shot making, but also how decisive he's been. If you have a guy that's drawing double teams, he's someone that can catch the ball on the right wing, drive to his left, and get downhill very quickly. And so, as the stars perk up, I'm really curious to see where their ceiling ends up being. Because they just have a really solid roster. They have a physical team that, outside of really outside of Miami, like who in the East is more physical than New York? Like, I don't know if there's a team. And even with Miami, that physicality is more so mentality than anything because they're still a smaller group comparatively. That playoff series last year, look, I'm I'm of the age where I have all the nostalgia baked in for Heat-Knicks 90s mm-hmm. rivalry. That was just – it was just too much. It was too much physicality. Like, I was, <laughs> I was ready for that series to be over by the end of it. It was just – ugly brutality 
I think the Knicks are going to be a top six team easy. Where, where they fall, we'll see. Not easy, but where they fall, we'll see. Um, do they win a round again? will depend on the matchups and the seedings, and obviously big picture is what it is, but they're just a good, solid team. Uh, I don't like – people have floated Levine for them. Um, I, You know, it's just I, – I said this the other day. I don't want to belabor it. Just like all of these guards who come up who are minuses on defense, and I think as, as hard as Zach Levine has worked to be a better on-ball defender, we can all agree he's a minus on defense. If you already have a guard, and despite what you said about Jalen Brunson's defense, and he's stout, he's a fire hydrant, he's, you know, undersized and whatever – you're just kind of handcuffing yourselves a little bit if you if you really outlay a lot of assets to build a team with minus defenders at the one and the two. It's just not a really good viable playoff path. Let's move to the team that New York humiliated in the first round of the playoffs. Maybe the most confusing team in the NBA so far, only because the, their their main four players have have barely played together, sixty nine minutes total. The Cleveland Cavaliers, five and six, nineteenth in offense, twelfth in defense. Mobley, Garland, Mitchell, Allen have only played sixty nine minutes together the whole season. Um, don't really know what to make of them. I mean, they're plus twenty six in the Mitchell Garland minutes. Mitchell has been outstanding, if a little. A little, little shooty, little, little, a, lot, a lot of shooting, a lot of Donovan Mitchell dribbling and shooting going on, but that's been necessary and given that Garland has missed games and uh, everyone has, has missed games. Mm-hmm. I, 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 the biggest reasons for optimism to me, and look, the Mobley-Allen thing, I'm going to be interested in your take on where they are progressing offensively. The biggest reason for optimism, other than their track record last year and that this, these guys are all good, I think Levert and Struess have been absolutely nailing everything the Cavs need from them on both ends of the floor. Struess driving more, shooting tons of threes, defending hard, and Lavert all around has been, I know he's only shooting 33% on threes, but he's been really good all around, averaging 19 a game, six man of the year candidate, too early to talk about that. Um, those two guys are nailing it. I just, I guess I'm just in the mode of like, I haven't really read a lot into their performance so far, given how few minutes we've seen. But what I really am interested for you is A, big picture, and B, the Mobley-Allen minutes offensively, which undid them a little bit in the playoffs last year. Where are you on that? Um, I think I'm mostly with you with the big picture. I don't take too much away from Cleveland's start. And like even to the Donovan Mitchell shooty portion, like I've also felt that. But it feels like they're very much in a like recalibration period with Garland back in. It's like, okay, let's figure out, let's refigure out who's kicking off these sets, who's playing second side, who's leading what unit, and kind of flowing from there. Cause like skill set wise, like I don't really have issue with them. Both of them are comfortable with the ball in their hands, both of them are comfortable off the ball. They've been used in action basically since day one together. And so I'm not super concerned about what that's going to look like. I think it's just figuring out, all right, Donovan, you don't have to carry as much. Let's figure out how to slowly kind of dial this back so there could be a better balance the front court is more interesting which to a similar point there hasn't been a ton of jared allen especially to start the year so Evan Mobley had to play more five and so we got an early look at what do some of these like Mobley plus niang at the four lineups look like what do the Mobley plus three guards and someone else look like and the results were okay and i don't know if okay is where cleveland wants to be but it's also early in the year um, big picture, though, like somebody has to become more comfortable in the intermediate area. And I think of, that's kind of, of those two of those, of those two, two bigs, bigs, you mean? Yeah, of the two bigs. Yeah, because I think 
it's a weird mix where like I feel like Jared Allen is more decisive, but he doesn't have the same passing chops or touch that Evan Mobley does. And Evan Mobley has that, but to start the year, there were so many possessions where it felt like he catches it on the short roll and then there's a pause. And I'm just like, I don't want to see the pause from him. If you get to if Donovan Mitchell draws two to the ball and gets it to you, take a dribble and fling it. If that pass gets deflected or something, I can diagnose, all right, that probably wasn't the best decision. But you're making the decision fast. You're making the read. You're trusting yourself. Or if you get down on the short roll, you go right into that push shot that he got more comfortable with last year or takes a dribble and goes up into someone at the rim. All right, fine. You made a quick decision. You diagnosed what was on the floor. You did what you felt was best. And we can kind of go from there. Seeing the pauses from Evan Mobley, it's not necessarily a red flag because he's so young. But it was just like I thought that after what we saw post All-Star break from him and what that postseason series against the Knicks was, that he would come out to a hotter start. And like maybe some of that for me personally was just seeing that compared to like the start that Scotty Barnes got off to. Woo! We're going to talk about him soon. Yeah. And just got to say like, okay, it would be cool if you were also on this linear trajectory. But as we both know, like growth isn't always linear. I think is if this is solved in March, we're not going to care that it didn't look great in October, November. So I'm still very much in wait and see mode. But like one of those two has to pop from like 14 feet. Agreed. It, it hasn't looked really any different to me this year overall. It's still a little bit clunky. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, part of being a great player is you got to make it work in tight spaces and make tough shots here and there and make the right pass. And the spacing is never going to be great with those two on the floor. And it, in recent games, when now that they've had both of them back, they're playing together a little bit less than you than than they had in the past. Like the first sub is coming early, and there are sometimes entire halves where they don't get back together until like the last few minutes of the half. Um, yeah, the Mobley at the five thing. Everybody wants that to be the roadmap, right? Like that's that's the sort of like oh well, they've got to get to a place. It's kind of what we went through with Memphis. Like we've got to get to a place where Jaron Jackson Jr. is the five, and you have four shooters around him. And it turns out that's like a little more complicated in reality than it sounds when you're, you know, moving the chess pieces around on paper. Not that chess is played on paper. That's a mixed metaphor. Anyway, <laughs> um, like Evan Mobley at the five is you got to have that tool in the toolbox. Absolutely. They're a little undersized around him on the wing for those lineups to really, really work. I, They're just going to have to make the two of them work together at a more functional level because they're going to need to play them minimum like 15 minutes a game, 18 minutes a game together against the best teams in the playoffs. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I mean, it's just been, they just haven't had the whole, the whole team together. A couple of stats I'm monitoring, you know, JB Bickerstaff talked a lot about, we want to play faster and we want to pass more They're They are passing 30 times more a game, which, you know, could mean nothing could mean something. And their pace is up. Uh, they were last in pace last year. They're 19th now, so it's up a little bit. I do like, and I've always liked, one way to solve this Mobley-Allen thing is every possession doesn't have to be a pick and roll where we got two of them on the floor. You can let them facilitate from the mm-hmm. elbows and have Garland and Mitchell run around in screening actions and cutting actions, and that works. Like Particularly Mobley is a good enough passer to make that work. I would lean like 5% more on my offense in that direction, lift both the bigs, invert the floor, and let them initiate a little bit more. But, you know, again, I think this is still a rock-solid team, and I'm excited to see the real team. That's all. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Like, I just just want them to get more time together. 
And I would like to see with Evan Mobley in particular, just get more comfortable making decisions in the middle of the floor. Cause I think he has the processing speed for it. Like I ultimately, if I end up being proven wrong, I just take the L, but like ultimately I think he's just going to get there. Like I think he oh, is that good. And he projects to be that good. I've but look at this year. It hasn't been, it just hasn't been the quickest start for him. Well, and part of that is like the more time that the bigs get to play with the two all-star guards around them and Max shooting around them, not Max maximum shooting and also Max Drew shooting. Like the more talent <laughs> around them, the more space there is, the more the floor is bent, the easier those reads are uh, for them to make. So I'm hopeful. Let's transition to probably the weirdest team and weirdest franchise in the league right now. The Toronto Raptors, new coach, five and six, 27th in offense, Eighth in defense. Uh, I don't know. Half the team is free agents. Like like all the important players, other than Scotty Barnes and Jakob Pertl, are free agents. Gary Trent Jr. can be one. OG Ananobi can be one. Pascal Siakam can be one. Pascal Siakam is adjusting to life as a second option in a Scotty Barnes world. That process is choppy, to say the least. Um, they're, you know, re- they played a very idiosyncratic style on both ends of the floor under Nick Nurse. And now they are evolving away from that um, into a more kind of traditional-ish NBA style. Like um, they are bottom 10 in turnovers after priding themselves on taking care of the ball above all costs. Um, And they still can't make any jump shots. (laughs) Like the biggest reason they're 27th in offense is they are 28th in three-point shooting and 29th in mid-range shooting. Um they are, however, Nikaias, plus 13 per 100 possessions with Barnes, Siakam, and Ananobi on the floor. It's only 147 minutes. Ananobi has missed a few recent games. That's something. What the hell is this team? I don't understand. I still don't understand this team. What, what the team is is confusing. It's something I've been in a headlock with all year long, or even dating back to like some of the preseason stuff, is, okay, Darko was in. They're going to try to shift this offense. They're going to try to inject more movement, more passing. They're going to spread the ball around a little bit more. They're going to run different stuff. I want to see what it looks like. And I have genuinely enjoyed a lot of the things that Toronto was running. But then you remember very quickly, oh, right. Teams can probably duck under or switch like 95% of the stuff that they're trying to run. And so you mentioned the offense being 28. Not only are they the worst half-court offense in the NBA right now, just looking at cleaning the glass. They are nearly 12 points below league average in half-court They're offense. worse than Portland in half-court offense? Yes, by a full point. So, like, it's Woo! it's really bad. Now, granted, those numbers have tanked a little bit more with OG out, which it stinks that OG keeps getting hurt, first and foremost. Two, I kind of wonder, like, what this does to this free agency? Because the Raptors just do not function without him on either end. Like one of the fun parts for me with the Scotty Barnes season has been what he's been able to do defensively. And a lot of that has come because he hasn't had to be at the point of attack. He hasn't been hounding guards 60 feet from the basket. He's been on more wings and forwards and sometimes yep. centers. And now we're seeing some of the, like the weeks out rim protection really pop off for him. And even the isolations that he's getting in space are now against bigger players. So it's just looked better with OG out. They have to reconfigure who's getting these matchups now. And now Scotty's been on more guards and like that hasn't been as fun. And then offensively, as frustrating as as frustrated as OG has allegedly, reportedly, whatever verbiage you want to use, has been about his offensive role, the shooting is very important. Like, he is one of the few guys on the roster that gets real minutes that teams have to think about helping off of. 
And with him not being there, and also like Gary Trent Jr. has been his time as well. That's right. You remove those two from the rotation, a team that already sees a bunch of switches, a bunch of unders, the drivers see a whole bunch of help. Now you're removing two of the best three shooters on the whole roster. Now it's even more difficult for Scotty to get to his zones for Pascal Siakam, who has perked up as of late. He's perked but- up. And honestly, like his usage is 25% usage rate. In his best seasons, it's been 26, 27, 28. So, you know, he, after after a, a start where it did look like, whoa, was he just standing around and doing nothing? Like, that's Pascal Siakam. He has started to normalize his offensive role and responsibility. Um, and the team has been okay. They're staggering uh, Siakam and Barnes, as they should do, is they're both kind of point forwards for these guys. Um, they're getting destroyed in the Scotty only minutes, despite the fact that Scotty's been outstanding. His jump shot looks like a completely different animal this year in a good way. So the Pascal thing is starting to normalize. It just and Dennis Schroeder's been fine. Like he gives him a little zip. He's making shots. Like he's been fine. I just we're just in year two of like okay, they're around five hundred. Um, the championship is a distant memory. What are they doing? Where are they going? Do they even have to, you don't necessarily ever pick a direction pick. You don't have to necess- pick a direction all the time immediately, but these contracts are now ticking, 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 ticking the expiration. I just, you know, I don't I they they're one of many teams that could win between 38 and 44 games. I just don't I don't know. I'd be surprised if it got any any different than that on the higher or lower end of that scale. Yeah, they're going to have to shift something. Again, like a lot of this is just going to be getting health. Like something I tweeted out yesterday, the Raptors are plus 46 in OG's 251 minutes, and they're minus 72 in the 287 minutes that they haven't played without him. Just to signify, again, how important he's been defensively. He's just He has been a top three defender in the league this year, full stop. And offensively, again, the shooting has been very important. Uh, I'm still a little antsy on some of the drives just because of some of the balance issues that he has, but he is someone that can attack closeouts. And without him, so much of their roster is just discombobulated for a roster that already isn't super balanced. Discombobulated so I, is the perfect word. Discombobulated. Yeah. Just like guys <laughs> dribbling around. Like I don't I don't really I mean, look, they're but Scotty's been out they're they're still good. Like they're discombobulated is not the same as bad. They're like a decent team. Yeah, they're solid. Like and even to your point about Dennis Schroeder, like he has been good. I've enjoyed him at the point of attack, I've enjoyed the drives. I've enjoyed and honestly making the watching the Lakers has made me appreciate more just how physical of a screener Dennis Schroeder is. But like with what he does, how much of it changes how defenses defend him and at large defend the Raptors. He's been more comfortable with the shots this year. They're still ducking under against them. He's setting these hard screens or he's ghosting screens for Scotty. They're not shifting on those ghost screens. And even if they do switch, like they're just going to show help off of Dennis if he's one pass away. So like how much of that is really changing things? And so I would like for them to, I would like for them to pick a direction at some point. Like I think based on this recent stretch and kind of what they're trying to build around Scotty, it feels like though Pascal is a better player, OG should probably be a higher priority if you're going to keep one of them just because of the shooting. And it allows you to shift more of the usage to Scotty. And if that's going to be the move, like what can you get for Pascal that fits around what you're doing? And the other thing about this, as we're just on the front court, I wonder what this really means for Jakob Pertl, because he did a lot of stabilizing for them when he was traded to Toronto, both with the handoff usage, how important his screening is, because among the big room last year, there just weren't a ton of great screeners that understood angles, consistently made contact, stuff like that. 
and defensively. Like they played him more aggressively than I anticipated when he was traded for San Antonio, but was good at the level and he's a good rim protector. This year, offensively, if you're shifting more to Scotty, you're shifting Pascal more off ball and teams are going to help off of him. The handoff usage is down for Jakob Pertl this year, and he's obviously not a spacer. So it's like if you're not using him as a hub like that, and you've been able to get some good things out of the Pascal and Scotty at the five or at the five four lineups, what exactly is Jakob's place long term? Because then they just gave him the they just gave him the contract and they also traded the first for him. They're it's year one of their darker era, so like I don't think it's like a red flag that they don't have this stuff figured out. But there does come a time in which they need to figure out how exactly do we want to attempt to build this out and like be actionable about building that thing out. Yeah, the Van Vliet Pirtle pick and roll became a tent pole for them very quickly last year. Um, once they got Jakob back, um, I look something will give eventually because it has to. Um, even if that's just more guys leaving for nothing in free agency, which I am not as up in arms about as a lot of people are. Um, it, but that's just me. Like I, sometimes that can be an okay thing to do. Um, in this case, it doesn't feel like that will be an okay thing to do. I did, you know, Kevin Pelton and I talked about the Levine fit for them. Again, theoretically they fit the template and he does stuff that they need. Particularly he, you know, he, takes the ball and he often puts it into the basket from far away which is it's a skill that you need to have um but i the the money i this is for every team the money and the concerns about his you know his knee after the acl stuff which he's recovered fine from but you know that it's just something the teams bring up um i don't know i don't i don't i don't know where where we'll end up there but um siakam's future is a topic of much discussion around the NBA as is Ananobi's, you know, again, like they've turned down lots of stuff for OG Ananobi and teams still really want OG Ananobi because like you said, he is a top five defender, top 10 defender, wherever he is. You said top three this year, perennial all defense candidate. And he's a tank. Like he can legit guard every single position and shoot 40% plus on catch and shoot threes. Like that is on volume. Like it's not, and he'll get you 15 to 20 a game. That's a really valuable player. I just don't know what the hell. We'll see. Okay, let's wrap with the Brooklyn Nets. Team average, 6-6, six and six, 15th in offense, 15th in defense, a total scoring margin of plus 12 over 12 games. Uh, Cam Thomas is injured. We are being robbed of the Cam Thomas explosion. Um, but uh, Cam Johnson is back, so one Cam out, another Cam in. Nick Claxton is back. They are now starting – the lineup that they started uh, in the postseason last year, their brief uh, postseason appearance, Dinwiddie, Bridges, Johnson, Finney-Smith, Claxton, way before the season, like August, September, I kind of assumed that would be their starting lineup because I did not necessarily think that Cam Thomas was going to become Michael Jordan for a month <laughs> of the season, nor did I think that the Ben Simmons-Nick Claxton pairing was at all viable offensively or that a Ben Simmons renaissance was in the offing. They instead tried to start Ben Simmons, uh, and they kind of, I thought, caught a break because Claxton got hurt, and so that pairing has only played 16 minutes the entire season. Now Simmons is gone. I like that lineup, but it's hard to argue with Cam Thomas averaging 27 a game. Like, he should probably start when he comes back. And I think the thing I like about him on this team is they got a lot of good players, a lot of wings, a lot of switchy dudes. Like, they can do do some stuff. Mikhail Bridges hasn't been quite the same guy this year, but a lot of that is just three-point shooting will normalize. Um, But I – 
they just have like a lot of a lot of similar guys, like a lot of big skinny wings who can switch on defense, but you can switch against them when you're on defense and they kind of don't have like the bullying, you know, guy who can get to the basket. They're 28th in free throws. They're just sort of is a, a likeness around a lightness, a likeness and a lightness, like a physical lightness around the roster that feels sort of redundant to me. Um, you know, they have a lot of trade assets too. I, I don't necessarily think that there's been a guy to come along the market that is really what they need. It just feels like they're kind of in a holding pattern right now, and th- and that's okay. They're 500. They have decent talent. They killed the Durant trade, just absolutely killed it. They killed the Kyrie trade. Like, they're fine. I just I, – I guess I'm excited for Cam Thomas to come back. I'm excited Claxton's back. Don't quite know what to make of them as as a team. Like, they want to run a lot. Jacques Vaughn talks about we want to lead the league in fast rate points. They're last in forcing turnovers. It's hard to lead the league in fast rate points when you can't force any turnovers. I think, again, part of that is they're just sort of light and alike. But it's a strange team, don't you think? It's a we- I, I, Every Nets game I watch, I'm like, I, I enjoyed the game. I don't, I don't really quite know what to say. Yeah, like I think it's just been a fine experience. Like I, it's is a very switchy group with a lot of like six five to six eight dudes that can do stuff. So that very much appeals to my basketball sensibilities. But that also comes with some very obvious drawbacks. And I think the fun of the Cam Thomas season, aside from just the casual nature in which he gets ridiculous buckets, is that he was kind of the guy that could also get downhill. Like he was yep. almost at seven. That's like, what I mean. Six, I, yeah, he was a breath of fresh air in that yeah, sense. Like he, he was mixing in these ridiculous jumpers, which are going to make all the highlight reels, but like he was also getting to the line six times a game. And he was getting to the rim more than like Mikael Bridges was and is. And so now without that, it's been fun when they've kind of downsized and they've really spread it out. And we've seen like some Royce or some Dorian at the five, which Dorian Finney-Smith has been really freaking good. And I feel like within the blondness of the net season, that may go under the radar. He has been ridiculously good. More comfort off the bounce. Three-point shooting has really been there obviously switching all over the place and defending a little bit of everyone. Some positions are better than others, but he's had a really fun season. And so it's very much turned into, it's it's weird. It's like Rockets-esque without James Harden during that era, where we're just going to have a whole bunch of wings. We're going to switch a bunch. We are going to try to out Matthew. As you mentioned, like the the commitment to running and getting out in the break hasn't been the same thing. Like they're not forcing a bunch of turnovers because they don't, they can't really afford to blitz like that. I don't think. And that's been the, that's part of the disappointment with not having Nick Claxton for a lot of the year. Like he's switchable in his own right. But if you were going to dial it up and try to force turnovers, he's someone that's really good at blocking shots, protecting the rim. And maybe that's a way that you get out in transition without him. And they had Ben Simmons early and then they didn't have him. Nick Claxton comes back. It's still just been a lot of switching or more drop than anticipated with Nick Claxton. So it's a conservative style. You're not going to force those turnovers. And thus, if you aren't getting stops like that way, you're not getting the transition opportunities. Then you just get into the half court where, Who's creating advantages for you? Like it hasn't been Mikhail consistently. He's still very good. And I expect the three-point shooting to perk up as well. But like if your best driver, Sans Cam Thomas, is Spencer Dinwiddie, and he's not a guy that's going to draw two, where are you at? Like it just becomes a high, a bigger emphasis on if we're running this action, we got to run it at 105 miles per hour and really nail this screen or really nail these ghost screens and really sell it. And so we can get some kind of advantage and then play advantage basketball from there. Because they have a roster full of dudes that can maintain and take advantage of advantages created. They just miss the guy that creates that advantage on his own. Yeah, Mikhail Bridges is awesome. We all love Mikhail Bridges. Great player. Great. Might make an all-star team in the next few years. 
every team would love to have Mikael Bridges. He's just not a number one guy. That's okay. Like he's averaging three point eight assists or whatever it is, and and you know he wants to pull up for mid range jumpers. That's his comfort zone. That's fine. He's not a number one guy. Not a lot of people are number one guys. He's awesome. Um, the, the Dennis Smith Lonnie Walker bench brigade has been yes. quite a lot of fun for the Brooklyn Lonnie Walker six man of the year candidate sixteen points a game on hot shooting from everywhere. They they come in and this kind of. They just do stuff. They change the game. They change the feel of the game. It's been a blast, those two guys off the bench. I'm having a lot of fun. And, like, that's where you really see the pace kind of perk up and some of that randomness in the half court because Lonnie can get into a bunch of pull-ups as well, but he's been on an absolute heater as a shooter. And Dennis Smith Jr., I, as one of the, like, six non-Charlotte fans that enjoyed watching the Hornets because that dude was just nasty at the point of attack, the defense remains fun, and he just puts his head down and just gets to the rim whenever he wants to. The decision-making from there can kind of be hit or miss when he does get into the paint. Sometimes he's just launching into like two or three dudes, but he just gives them such a level of juice. I've really enjoyed the second units. And again, that kind of coincides with them going smaller sometimes. Actually, I'll pause right there. How have you felt about the Dayron Sharp minute so far this year? Uh, they're I, not strongly. I'm interested to see if you have any strong... I mean, he is an offensive rebounding machine and kind of a chaos agent. Um. I have not felt strongly either way. It's one of the things about this team. It's like the Simmons at center minutes didn't really work. The we don't have any big men on the floor minutes that you talked about are kind of a net even. Like those aren't working like gangbusters either. I have not looked at Sharp's uh, plus minus, but I'm interested to hear your take on Dayron Sharp. Like I feel like he's been fine. It's just it kind of ties into the like force of turnovers thing. Like I just don't know how much scheme versatility he has defensively. He helps on the glass, but I feel like you're just kind of baked into we got to play drop or else yeah. with this guy. And so, and even with that, like he just doesn't have the vertical pop to really truly affect dudes at the rim either. And so just quickly looking at the plus minus, they're winning his minutes. So that's a positive, but like that feels more about the guards and wings that he's playing with more so than what he's doing. Um, one of my questions heading into the year with Brooklyn was who was going to establish themselves as that true backup five. Would Ben Simmons be good at it? And now he's just out, which makes me incredibly sad. Like we've seen Dayron, we've seen a little bit of Trendon Watford. Like that's been. Oh, I'm so glad you. I just Trendon Watford is gonna be one of those guys. <laughs> just one of my guys. He's like comes in. He's like point Watford all of a sudden, yeah, like bringing does. the ball up, running the offense. He I'm all in on Trendon Watford. Play him 40 minutes a game. I like that guy. He does stuff. He just does stuff. He's got a gorgeous floater. Play Trendon Watford. That's my number one piece of advice to the Nets. I have no idea if it'll work. I just want them to play Trendon Watford. <laughs> I'm right there with actually now that I'm thinking about it, do the Nets just lead the NBA in dudes in like the 11 through 15 spots in the rotation that can just do stuff? It's a great time. Like you get Trendon Wofford, like Cam Thomas was technically that guy last year because of everyone they had ahead of him. We know what kind of score he can be. Like we've had the random Armani Brooks run. Like I still believe in like the funkiness of Harry Giles. Thank goodness he's back healthy. Like they just have a lot of dudes they can just plug in on a random Tuesdays. Like, oh, well, he gave them 16 minutes, eight, five, and three. This is fun. Um, very nerd tangent, so my apologies. But, yeah, it, they're just a really interesting team, and they are without a true number one guy. They don't, they just don't have the guy they can draw to. And without that, that makes the offense very reliant on how many threes they're making. And a lot of those are self-created or contested. And then defensively, like, they just don't have – I guess with Claxton back, I am curious to see if they decide for a stretch. Let's just ramp this up. Let's see what blitzes with Nick Claxton on the back end looks like. Let's put him on a non-shooting wing. 
let's put Dorian or let's put Royce or whoever they have in it, three or four. Let's put them on a the center. We'll let Nick Claxton roam around. Y'all just trap and see if we can force some turnovers that way. And maybe that's a way to kind of juice things in transition and make it easier for them. Because right now, like, they, they just don't have enough in the half court to be, like, someone serious. How did you feel about the six Ben Simmons games? Six and a half points, 6.7 assists, 11 rebounds a game. Um, I did see a headline, an article that I read uh, somewhere last week that verged on Ben Simmons' is back. Like, Ben Simmons looks more like his old self. And my immediate reaction was, he, he does? Like, uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I've been seeing the wrong games. Like, I didn't see much that made me think a renaissance is coming. And I, and I hate to repeat myself, but really the only stat from Ben Simmons I care about is free throws. Mm-hmm. He's one of four on free throws this year. He's afraid to get fouled. And until that changes, the rest of it is just noise to me. And I've never seen a player that more than this version of Ben Simmons. This is not the same Ben Simmons that made all NBA. We all know that who's like moving forward and backward at the same time. Like when he's bringing the ball up in transition, he's flying forward, but he's just waiting for the moment where he can stop and give the ball to somebody else. And it's like, what, like, I, it's just a very, I just still don't think Simmons Claxton is viable. I don't think Simmons as a center is viable defensively. I don't know what he is anymore, but I did not buy the, Oh, Ben Simmons might be back based on what those six games showed me. Uh, yeah, I couldn't get as far as back. I do feel like he, he looked better. And you could tell he felt better. And I think that popped more defensively than it did offensively. Though I will say, like, if we're, like, really getting granular with it, like, it did feel like the screens were better for him. Like, he was making more contact on handoffs versus, like, the far extension. Here you go. Let me try to duck to the short corner or something like that. So, like, in those very specific areas, it just sounds like I'm, like, coping in real time. But, like, in those very specific areas, it felt better. And you did see more of the surges as a driver. But to your point, like, it wasn't consistent enough. It wasn't full-fledged, I am I am getting to the rim no matter what, and if you're there, I am putting my shoulder into your chest. Like, that hasn't come back, and until that comes back, we're not going to see all-star Ben Simmons. I, like, I saw enough that Ben I, Simmons can that, be a productive. There's no that, – that's over, all-star yeah. Ben Simmons. It's not going to happen. Um, yeah. Let's wrap with uh, Chris Haynes, uh, a Bleacher Report, and TNT, and, and just everywhere, reported this morning that Russell Westbrook has – requested or volunteered to come off the bench for the Los Angeles Clippers in order to, you know, ease the development process with James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George. The Clippers, of course, are O and whatever, five, I think, with James Harden. I don't want to talk too much about the Clippers. Um, I suggested this week that perhaps James Harden should come off the bench um, because somebody needs to come off the bench. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea. Well, it's, it's, someone needs to come off the bench. So, Yes, Russ is coming off the bench. Um, in their last game against Denver, when they finally looked like a real basketball team that cared, they kind of settled into Russ and PG as one pairing, Harden and Kawhi as the other pairing, which to Tyloo's credit, that, that seemed to work and is, is not my first conception of the team. Um, my only concern with Russ coming off the bench is they lose a little bit of pace, which fine. I've been the, the, when they made this trade. The first thing I said was Terrence Mann to start over Russ. So this is the move that I and many others had pitched before, mm-hmm. um, because you just the spacing will just be infinitely better if they have two of Russ, Tucker, and Zubats on the floor. 
you can work around that now and then, but the spacing is just going to be so compromised that it's hard, hard work to do. My only concern is I liked how they got to Harden, gets to do the Harden show with the second unit plus Zubats. And I, is that harder to get to starting Harden? Maybe, maybe it's not. But do you have any reaction to this move? Is this going to save the Clippers? Uh, save the Clippers? Like, I don't know if this singular move does it. Because as you mentioned, like, they've already been doing the staggering. Like, it felt very early on in the Harden experience. It is, here's our four. And now here's our three. And now here's Harden with everyone else. And now that's become more of the 2v2 that you just talked about. And so, like, I feel like that was already coming. And I think ultimately it's just going to be, like, what kind of pace and what kind of execution they have in the half court. That's it. Like, I think they just have they have to run their stuff hard. Like, that's something that you hit on your podcast. That's something that Steve and I talked about with, like, a full-blown Clipper section on Tuesday. Um, I think they've run some fun stuff, but, like, the execution isn't there yet. And I think that's just going to come with time. That's also going to come with James Harden, who is, again, in game, what, five of his actual season after not playing in the preseason and stuff, like as he gets back into his own shape, as he said himself. Is he still ramping up? Is it, is the, when does the ramp up, st- this is, is it, is the ramp up over? I, I think it's getting close. Are we all just always ramping up for life? Is every day just a new ramp up? <laughs> every day is a new ramp up. I'm going to start using that in my own, in my own life. Like I'm on a red eye tonight back home. I want to, you know, let me have a little nap tomorrow, honey. I'm ra- I'm ramping up to fa- I'm ramping back up to fatherhood. Yeah, I'm also going to be ramping up on Sunday still. So just <laughs> give me a couple more days to ramp up. There you go. So I think that ramp up period is still being there. To the concerns about Russ to the bench, like I do keep an eye on, like Russ is going to be stashed in the corner. He's quietly shooting like 44% on corner threes this year. Terrence Mann, who also missed a lot of the early portion of the season, he hasn't made a corner three yet. And in general, he hasn't shot well from the corners in his Clippers career. So, like, for the Terrence man is a better shooter than Russ thing, like, that's probably true. I don't know how much differently teams are going to guard him when he's spaced. And the difference in rim pressure between Russ and Terrence man on the ball, I think it's just different. And so I would keep an eye on that, especially in light of, and I teased this a little bit earlier, Kawhi just hasn't looked the same as a driver. Like, Agreed. drives per 100 possessions are down. The points per chance, the points per direct, they're all down. The blow-by rate is down. He's just not getting to his spots with the same level of ease. And I think in light of how switchable the roster is just going to be like one through four with Zubats, I don't think you want to switch a lot of those because he can mash on the glass. But as switchable as that group is, they need someone that can not only just jumpstart their offense and get them into their stuff quicker, but someone who can just put their head down and get downhill. Like so far this year, it's felt like it's been Paul George, but even he doesn't touch the paint in like at the Indy rate or the OKC rate or even the early Clipper rate. So I do wonder how much rim pressure they're going to generate with that group. It's not like Russ is playing zero minutes, so you'll still see him. But those are that'll be an extra concern of mine as they transition to this new start lineup. Like what kind of pop are they playing with? How often can they touch the paint? Ty Lue said everything that needs to be said when he said we can't walk around on offense. That's the whole thing for the Clippers. That's the entire thing in one sentence. We don't need to say anything more. Nikias Duncan of the dunker spot. You'll catch him with J.J. Redick and his buddy Steve Jones, his partner Steve Jones, who's also come on this podcast. Essential basketball analysis. If you want to know what's going on in the game, listen to Nikias and Steve on the dunker spot. Thank you for lending us some of your expertise and time. I will see you down the road, my friend. Indeed. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. Have a good one.